turn with me now to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, you'll find this, of course, towards the very end of the Bible on page 1657, if you're using a few Bibles, 1657, 1657. Revelation 2, be reading verses 18 through 29. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18, going to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, cast her into a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we continue, of course, today in our series on this great but mysterious book of Revelation. It's a book that is sometimes very difficult to understand, although I think these earlier chapters are actually not as difficult as some of the later ones, with all of the, the figures of speech, the symbols, and so forth. Matter of fact, these chapters, although they employ a number of symbols, are really pretty straightforward, are they not? And here, as we look at the letter to the church in Thyatira, which we began last week, we see that Christ warns the church not to tolerate immoral and mystical teaching. Christ warns the church not to tolerate immoral and mystical teaching. Now, of course, we've already considered in chapter 1 of Revelation the risen, conquering, glorious Christ. 
as he reveals himself, as he stands amidst the seven candlesticks, where those are symbols, of course, lampstands, those are symbols of the seven churches in Asia, or Asia Minor, what today we would call the nation of Turkey. And then chapters 2 and 3 consist of letters to those seven churches. First of all, Ephesus, which not only had lost its first love, but we can even say more definitively had left its first love, had left it behind. Smyrna, which the Lord encouraged in the midst of persecution. Pergamum, which was not exercising discipline against the Nicolaitans, who were also promoting a form of immorality. The Thyatira's problem then, as we get to Thyatira, its problem was that of the, not just the toleration, but really the, the promotion, if you will, of immorality. And the root of that, which was mysticism, mysticism. As we look at Thyatira then, we consider the city, first of all, uh, remember, we, we talked about how we start, this is southwestern Turkey now, though we start in Ephesus, and then uh, we go on, we, we go up, sort of go up the coast to Smyrna, and then Pergamum to the, a little bit to the north. We're cutting back southeast, east, southeast, to the city of Thyatira. Through that valley of Thyatira passed all sorts of trade and communication. The imperial post road, we talked about post roads last time, the imperial post road where the mail and the communication would go took that route. The inhabitants were soldier citizens. There was a spirit of militarism in the city, as seen even on the coins where Tyrannos, the hero, was portrayed on a coin with an axe over his shoulder but also the tradesmen, the various trade guilds. We talked about a number of those last time. The tanners, the, uh, the leather workers, the, the bakers, the, the ones that worked in pottery. Numerous trade guilds, because at this point, there was the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, so it wasn't so much the military, although that was in the past, but now it had become very much a commercial center, very much a commercial center, as that imperial post-road took the route through that valley. And of course, this is going to be one of the issues that we're going to be looking at in just a moment. This is going to be one of the problems. This is one of the reasons why we have the whole issue with regard to Jezebel is because of those trade guilds. Those trade guilds. By the way, you Remember that there's not much that we know in terms of the church itself. It's somewhat an obscure history. But the one person we do know was also a tradeswoman, namely Lydia, the seller of purple. Lydia was from Thyatira, although Paul met her in Philippi, a devout Jew who had converted to Christianity. Notice again in verse 18 the introduction of the text. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, as we've suggested, angel, well, angel means messenger. I mean, we're not talking about a literal angel here, one of, the, one of the spiritual beings. We're talking about a messenger or perhaps a group of messengers, perhaps the elders, the presbyters considered together. Notice also, again, this material was written 
so that there is there can be no question, no confusion over what the message was. So to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, who is the one who writes? It is the Lord Jesus himself. Notice the description here. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. He is God come in the flesh. He is the God-man to whom the Father gives authority, as we see in uh, verse 26 and on to verse 27. To him I will give power over the nations, as also I have received from my Father. But notice, besides that, how he's described. Notice, notice what it says here. Has eyes like a flame of fire. This is Jesus' piercing omniscience. He knows all things. He knows what I'm all about. He knows what you're all about. He sees all the hidden things, even the things we don't know about ourselves. All the hidden sins, all the recesses of the heart, he sees through us. If we saw like he saw, we would be appalled and ashamed of ourselves. That's who Jesus is. He has eyes like a flame of fire. And his burnished bronze, not only pointing to his infinite capacity to endure, but this whole idea of the, the glowing bronze, it's, it's, it's indicating his march as a mighty warrior against his enemies. Now last week we considered, first of all, the commendation because the Lord Jesus in all these letters will start out by commending the church. Or it could be a regional church, could be a presbytery, but nevertheless he commends the church in these various cities, these various areas. And so he does here. He, he In general terms he says, I know your works. I know your deeds. Indeed, he does know. And particularly, he knows their love, faith, ministry, the word there, diakonia, like deacon, diaconal service, literally waiting on tables. So the practical dimensions of that service. Love, faith, ministry, and patience or perseverance. And not only that, why, if you had looked at this church the year before, and you looked at it now, you'd say, why? It's gotten better. That's what Jesus says. Their works lately were better than those at the first. In other words, the church was growing spiritually. But, but, there's a problem, and in, in conjunction with that problem, there is a warning. Notice Jesus says, but, nevertheless, verse 20, I have a few things against you. How often in these epistles to the churches our Lord has to take them to task for their shortcomings. And now he's going to spell out what the problem is. It has to do with this woman called Jezebel. Now, this was a real person. This was a real woman. This is not just a figure for the Nicolaitans that we saw in the previous, in the letter to the previous church. Now, it's not just a big, this is a real, actual person who's referred to by the figure of Jezebel, or we could even say, we could even perhaps translate it, that Jezebel of a woman. 
Now, the first Jezebel, who is being referenced, was one of the most wicked characters in the Bible. And by the way, can I pause here just a moment, children, and note the fact that the Bible is very realistic. The Bible is very realistic. It doesn't mince any words when it comes to these matters. And as we were reading through from 1 Kings and 2 Kings, those passages today, I'm sure perhaps you're wanting to cringe a little bit. The Bible is very realistic. These are serious matters that the Bible deals with. And so this first Jezebel, the one being referenced here, is one of the most wicked characters in the Bible. Ahab, the king of the ten northern tribes of Israel, had married this heathen princess. And as a result of her influence, Ahab set up the worship of Baal, just like his father-in-law, Ethbaal of the Zidonians. So Ahab had set up the worship of his false god, Baal. Jezebel, as we read today, arranges for the murder of Naboth, via false witnesses. So not only, murder, not only lying, but of course resulting in murder, so that Ahab, her husband, could confiscate, could take his vineyard. She also put to death the priest of Jehovah, or Yahweh, the priest of the Lord, and helped to promote the priest of Baal. After Elijah, remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? You remember what he did? How he, he uh, had a challenge in terms of who is God, who's the real God. Yes, you priest of Baal, go ahead and call on him. Call a little louder. Maybe he's, uh, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's occupied, which could have some interesting uh, connotations. But in any case, yeah, go and call him. Call in your God. And they cut themselves as they danced around, danced around that plate, that altar where the sacrifice was to, was to be done. Remember what Elijah did? He said, let's pour some water on here. Do it again. Do it again. And then what happened? Is that as he prayed very, very, very simply, fire from heaven came and devoured the sacrifice, licked up the water in the trenches and so forth. Elijah, or through Elijah's ministry, the true God was showing who he was. And after that triumph on Mount Carmel, she threatened him, she threatened the, pre the prophet so that he fled. Later, God's prophet foretold that she would, that she, she would be eaten by dogs in the district of Jezreel, the very place, the very place where Naboth, the, the owner of the vineyard, had been killed. This prophecy came true, as we know, as we read from 2 Kings 9 today, came true when Jehu became king in a coup. Now, that's the Jezebel of the Old Testament. And that figure then, that, that is being, that's being referred to now here in the New Testament. The Jezebel in Thyatira called herself a prophetess. One who possessed special revelation. Now, there were, of course, as we know, there were apostles and prophets in the New Testament, but there are also false apostles and false prophets. 
And there were prophetesses from time to time uh, in the Old Testament and even in the New, like such as Anna, for example, uh, in terms of the birth of Jesus. But even as there could be a true prophetess, so there could be false prophetesses. And that's what you have here. Notice what she did. She taught and led astray Jesus' bondservants. Jesus' servants. Notice verse 20. She calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants, my bondservants, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, those bondservants... Why are they bondservants to Jesus? Because he paid for them with his blood. He purchased them with a price. And it is those very servants that he has purchased with a price that she is attempting to lead astray. But you see, what's the problem here? The problem, I mean, we can always have false people around, but the problem is that the church leaders did not stop her from spreading this false teaching. Remember what Jesus said? It was better for those who give offense to these my little ones. It was better for them to have a mill. It's better to have a millstone hung about their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea than to offend me, Jesus was saying, by their offending and causing to stumble one of these little ones. The specific errors were that of acts of immorality, sexual immorality, and eating things offered to idols. Now, how could this happen? How could this happen in a church that was growing spiritually, in a church that had so much going for it in terms of the love, the service, the diaconal deeds, all of that? How could it happen when such obviously wicked teachings could be spread with the church's blessing. Well, we've already noted that Thyatira was a city of guilds, of guild, of unions almost, we could say. In order to succeed in business, one had to participate in these guilds. But a Christian could not legitimately do so. Because the guilds back then had banquets, which were orgies, which were all given over to immorality and drunkenness. But more than that, the guilds back then were founded on a pagan religious base. But that was the temptation, you see. That was the temptation. This Jezebel of a woman then tried to lead believers astray in these matters. Perhaps... She painted herself like the Jezebel of old who painted herself. Maybe she painted herself according to the ways of the world, playing up that which appeals to the senses and the material. Perhaps she told the flock, the Lord has told me, I, you know, I have this special revelation, the Lord has told me, you must experience the depths of Satan, the deep things. Notice verse 24 who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say. Perhaps she was saying, "You, I, I've got new revelation. I've got a new way out of this dilemma, if you will. The Lord has told me 
You must experience the depths of Satan, his deep things, in order truly to taste of the grace of God. And of course, at the same time, be able to participate in the guilds and so forth. She would testify that she had personally obeyed this revelation. She committed fornication herself. As Hooksamaw pointed out, she feasted with the heathen in their sacrificial meals. And she would have concluded that there was great blessing in doing so, since now she appreciated even more the grace of God in Christ. The church offers no rebuke to this. Rather, the church listens, pays heed to it, thereby admitting that what she's saying may actually be correct. And some even succumb to this devilish teaching and follow her into the depths of sin. Why would the church do this? Well, first of all, it would appear that the church was not willing to be guided totally and completely by the objective standard of the word of God. The church was not willing to be guided totally and completely by the objective standard of the word of God, but was willing to receive revelation that was contradictory to that word. And of course, that would indicate then, would it not, that the church was inclined toward a mystical understanding and to accepting experience above the plain teachings of Holy Scripture. Let me just pause here a moment and say that could be a temptation for all of us. But if that is your temptation today, let me say to you, you need to make sure that you are not succumbing to that temptation. There are all of us at times. What do we try to do? It's kind of like, it's kind of like a child trying to get around what the parent is saying. Or maybe maybe a student trying to get around a professor's instructions. There are always loopholes, right? There are always ways around it if you really want to go that route. And you see, that's, that's what you have here. And so, please be aware then of the temptation that all of us face, all of us face that, but also the danger that is here as well. Of course, it's also that being a woman, she could perhaps have been somewhat alluring and sensuous and also allured by emotional means as well. Well, notice the Lord's punishment then. Notice the warning to Jezebel. Notice the warning that he gives to her. Um, um, he, um, the Lord gave her time to repent. The Lord gave her time to repent. This is what he said, verse 21. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. How gracious it is. How gracious it is for the Lord to give her time to repent. But she was not willing to change her mind. What is the threat? Behold, Jesus says, I will cast her upon a bed and I will kill her children in death. She may very well have been committing immorality on couches in various guild halls. And the Lord is saying that he will cast her into a bed of trouble. And notice what it says here. Kill her children with death or in death. 
we, we could say it this way. Yes, I mean, it seems, this seems redundant. Of course, if you kill somebody, the person's going to die. But it seems to be something a little deeper than that. It's, it appears that what Jesus is saying here is that I'm going to kill her children in the sphere of death. That is to say, living according to the ways of death. And so to die in the sphere of death, apart from him, is a horrible thing. And this must have brought to mind, by the way, it had to have brought to mind, Jehu. Remember Jehu, the one who, who uh, uh, did the coup d'etat against uh, Ahab? What did Jehu did? He killed 70 of Ahab's sons and put their heads in baskets. And it must have brought to mind that incident when Jesus says, I will kill her children in death. Notice the warning to her followers, and I will cast those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation until they repent of their evil deeds. Again, the Bible does not mince words regarding sin and its consequences, and especially note that the basis on which this punishment comes is, first of all, the Lord's omniscience. He has eyes with flames of fire, and the Lord's justice, his feet are like burnished bronze. And so he says, I will do this. But then we come to the promise that Jesus gives. Having heard the, having seen the problem, having heard the warning, now we come to the promise. He, as Jesus says now in Verse 24, now to the rest in Thyatira, the remnant. That doesn't necessarily mean that's a minority, could be a majority. You know, you know the old saying about one bad apple can spoil the whole, the whole barrel? You know that saying? Children, if you've got one bad apple in a, in a barrel of apples, take that bad apple out or it's going to ruin all the apples. Okay? So it could very well be that at this point, this church that is growing spiritually has a lot going for it. It could very well be that it's the majority that is not going along with these, with these uh, uh, positions here. But he says to the rest in Thyatira, he said, I'm going to, I will, end of verse 24, I will put on you no other burden. Now that's an interesting phrase. That phrase is found in Acts chapter 15, when you had the first general assembly of the church, the first meeting, the first church council, if you will. And as the church made a judicial ruling in that matter, it basically said, we're going we're to send out these things, but we're going to lay no other burden on you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I'm going to put on you no other burden. Follow my law. I'm not going to burden you with anything else. The fire tyrant Christians, of course, should follow the directions of the Jerusalem Council, which included abstaining from immorality. But Christ would not bind on the church anything more than the plain teaching of Scripture. And again, he says, verse 25, but hold fast what you have till I come. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hang on to what you have, till I come. And furthermore, verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Well, Jesus addresses this in verse 26 to the overcomers. He who overcomes, to the overcomers. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I, have, have, as I also have received from my Father. See, the wicked rulers, as we know from Psalm 2 that we'll be singing from in just a moment, that is quoted here in verse 27, we know that from Psalm 2 that the wicked rulers were in a state of rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. They were in a state of rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. And the Lord Jesus, you see, has been given all authority over all nations. He's been given that, as he says here, from his Father. He's been given that authority, not simply because he is the eternal God, the eternal Son of God, but also because he is the God-man, because he is God come in the flesh, because he has come as the Messiah, because he has done his great redemptive and mediatorial work. He's been given that authority over all nations to rule, or we could even say to shepherd, with an iron rod. And amazingly, are you catching what he's saying here? He's not presenting so much his own power here, his own authority, but amazingly, what is he saying? To the overcomers, I will give power over the nations. In other words, he's saying, we are joint heirs with him. As, as Jesus says, or as, as Paul says, we shall judge the angels. But Israel, because of its idolatry, of course, would be broken to pieces, as we signed in Isaiah 30 and Jeremiah 19. But Jesus here applies this figure, rotting, ruling with a rod of iron, he applies this figure to all the world. Now notice here something very important. I'm just going to go down a a trail here just for a second. There is a connection. Notice there's a connection between Jesus' rule over all things and his rule over the church. There's a connection between Jesus' rule over all things and his rule over the church. This is what we call Jesus' mediatorial kingship. We find this in Ephesians chapter 1 at the very end of it where Paul says, Jesus has been placed far above all principality and power and might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fall in all. So Jesus is directing all the things we see about us in our society. He's directing all of those things for his glory, and for the good of his people. Furthermore, his saviorhood only makes sense if all authority has been given to him, and that's exactly what his claim is. In Matthew 28, verse 18, he comes after his resurrection. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's who Jesus is. And is this Jesus, my friends, who himself is the morning star? You see that verse 28? And I will give him, that is say, the one who overcomes, and I will give him the morning star. That 
shows the star, the morning star, its glorious victory. But also, the morning star, it's interesting, isn't it? Not just a star, it's the morning star, which comes as a sign of encouragement after the blackest night. The soldier on lonely outpost duty would be glad for the dawn. The morning star, after all the the darkness, perhaps the dampness of night, all of a sudden, as a harbinger, as a hint of the coming dawn, there he sees that morning star. And Jesus is saying, I will give him the morning star. That is to say, I will give him myself because I am the morning star. These promises, of course, are for those who persevere, those who keep Christ's deed until the end. I want to go down another trail just for a second. I want to point out that all of this that we've been talking about only makes sense, again, if Christ is Lord over all. It only makes sense if Christ is Lord over all. And that means he's got to be Lord over every area of your life. See, we, we talk about, you've heard about Christians who are Sunday Christians. And then Monday through Saturday, they live like the devil. They live like the world. You heard about that? What do we call such people? We call them hypocrites, don't we? Guess that's what they are. Christ is to be Lord over everything, including your business dealings, your school work, everything. But you see that that very and the world looks at us and you know, oh that's a Christian that does that acts like that. Okay? But what we need to understand here as well is that that's not simply in terms like the eighth and the ninth commandment, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, but it's also in terms of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the basis for that. For the lordship of Christ over every area of our life. And that leads me then, that leads me as we're, we're talking about this in terms of this giving power over the nations, this leads me then to talk about the lordship of Christ over politics. You've all heard the saying, religion and politics don't mix. And to be sure, let me be very clear. There are areas of liberty. Think about it in your own life. God has given us his law, but he's also given us Christian liberty in terms of how we live our lives as long as we don't violate that law. Same with a family. So a family can set up its own rules. Again, not not against the law of God. The same is true of a nation. And so we can have political discussion. We have different political parties that will say, Okay, well, I think we ought to, I think we ought to put a road here, and another part, another political party will say, another candidate will say, no, I think we ought to put the road over here, or I think we need to spend money on this, and not money on that, and so forth. So there is some flexibility here, isn't there? And even that is under the lordship of Christ. But on the other hand, regimes, it is possible for regimes to become so rebellious as actually to become demonic. 
Think of Nazi Germany. Think of the Soviet Union. Think of the Pol Pot regime and so forth. And so what we would contend here then is that the Lord Jesus is the one who is ruling over the nations and the Lord Jesus is the one who is judging the nations and he is demonstrating his, his sovereignty over them and ultimately his judgment of them when they go in these directions that are totally outside of what God wants. One other quick thing here, and that is, notice, and this goes right back to the temptation, it goes right back to the temptation that we're talking about. Because what do you have here in terms of the guilds and in terms of the government? You have big government and big business. Isn't that interesting? You have big government and big business united in their opposition to Christ and making an appeal to civic duty. Right? Sounds like the headlines from 2021, doesn't it? See how up-to-date the scripture is? That's what you have here. You have big government and big business there in Thyatira. And that's precisely what the temptation was in terms of these people. Just burn a little incense or just go along with the crowd or at least acknowledge that we're really okay, you see. That's the temptation that one has in terms of society. And it is in that context that the Lord Jesus is saying, no, you must stand firm. You must be like a watchman on the wall. You must watch. You must guard. You must hold fast. And you must not follow that Jezebel of a woman. Now, three points, then, in closing of application. Number one, <coughs> note the importance of church discipline. Note the importance of church discipline. Notice verse 23. All the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your works. One of the purposes of church discipline, whether it's directly from the Lord or through his officers, one of the purposes is that the others may fear. And of course, the Lord will deal with those with whom the church does not, either due to unwillingness or inability. But this is one of the purposes of church discipline. Secondly, affirm the importance of sola scriptura. Affirm the importance of only the scriptures by which to be governed. There are many mystical winds which threaten to blow the church off course. Many, many mystical winds that will try to blow the church off course. But the only reliable, sure guide is the written word of God. Amen. And thirdly, my friends, hang on to sound doctrine. That is, the teaching of the Bible. Do not fool yourself into thinking. Do not fool yourself into thinking that you can rationalize away immoral behavior and get away with it. As always, understand that the way you hang on to sound doctrine is by hanging on to Christ, this glorious Savior, this beautiful Savior, this morning star, whose eyes are like flames of lightning, 
His feet are like burnished brass. God, who knows all things, a God of all judgment, but also a Savior of all grace and mercy. He's the only hope. My friends, hang on to him. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? Amen. And our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would apply these words to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that anything not in accordance with thy will would be forgotten, but that those things that are true to thy word would be remembered and applied in this hour, in this place, and going forward as well. Be pleased, O God, to give us the grace to hold on to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.